As artificial intelligence becomes more prevalent in business, leaders in the C-suite are trying to figure out when and how to deploy the technology. Many questions will come up within organizations when they are focusing on AI deployment. And luckily, Daniel Fagella is here to help answer them. Daniel is the CEO and head of research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, where he and his team map the capabilities of AI and hone in on where to deploy AI to get the greatest ROI. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Daniel explains the work that goes into making those kinds of projections, and he discusses how the AI field is still growing and changing. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries, and we are joined, special guest, Dan, what's going on? Ah, not too much. I'm, I'm locked up like you are and glad to be here. Yeah, indeed. Um, so we're going to get into a bunch about AI today, uh, a lot of AI talk, um, and we're going to converse a little bit about what you're doing at Emerge. But before we get into that, how did you get started in technology? Yeah, um, a little bit of a strange story, to be honest. I, I, uh, I started off paying for college by running a mixed martial arts gym. So if we, we had a video call right now, you see I kind of have cauliflower ears like a college wrestler, and that's because I trained mixed martial arts fighters, mostly because I didn't want to get a job. My friends were selling insurance and delivering pizzas, and I was going to go to graduate school at UPenn, and it was extremely expensive. And so I was, I was training um, martial arts, and I, I went to University of Pennsylvania to study skill development and skill acquisition. So essentially, my master's degree was in the science of skill. Uh, and while I was there learning about the neuroscience and cognitive models of learning, there were people tapping me on the shoulder, and this is 2011, about what was being done with natural language processing and computer vision, which was really early days at the time. And by the time I graduated, it sort of dawned on me, I might have gotten the wrong degree because this technology was going to be extremely consequential. So um, after I left, I always kept uh, a toe in the water about AI, started doing interviews as, as late back as 2012, um, grew and sold a, a multi-million dollar e-commerce company in the interim and used all those funds to start Emerge so that I can focus full-time on the ROI impact of artificial intelligence. So I wish I could say I knew it from high school, but I sure didn't. I was uh, training people to fight in cages. <laughs> I love it. Um, and uh, I'm sure that well, maybe we'll, later on in the episode, we'll get into compare and contrast Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, uh, and, and AI. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's, there's some analogy anyway. I'm sure there. I'm sure there is. I'm sure we'll we'll get there. So tell me a little bit about Emerge and who are the types of folks that you're working with. Yeah. So Emerge is focused on mapping the capability space of AI to help leaders make powerful artificial intelligence strategies. So really, our work involves. Uh, we could break it up into two parts: tracking the total AI use case. Uh, sort of inventory on the vendor side. So let's let's take an industry like banking. A lot of our work is in financial services. You mentioned who do we work with. Financial services firms, a billion and up in revenue who are building AI strategies, have a pretty good chance of being in our inbox or pipeline somewhere. 
So we, we track kind of the totality of the startup ecosystem offering AI into banking on the one hand. We have our own proprietary scores for things like evidence of ROI, ease of deployment. We have our own ontologies for how we break down those use cases and applications, finding where they fit. And then we also track the enterprise side. So we interview the you know, former head of AI at HSBC, C-level people at Citibank, um, you know, high up folks. Uh, in, in the banking sector for, for looking at banking um, and get a sense of what their deployments are. Where are they allocating their funds? Um, where are they sending their attentions when it comes to building an AI advantage and what are their known use cases? And then that map of both sides of the coin here, the vendor ecosystem and the enterprise ecosystem allows us to paint a pretty good picture of what are the inevitable trends that banks really should be doubling down on and what are the areas where ROI is pretty self-evident when you look at both sides. Uh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of primary heavy lifting interviews and, and secondary kind of data crunching here. Uh, but that's the core of our work. And it's, it's enterprises that are building or validating strategies or finding high ROI projects. That's, that's who we deal with. So what are some examples of those kind of projects? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll give you one example. So we're working with one of the, the four biggest banks in Australia uh, right now. So they, like many banks of, of their relative size, you know, we're talking 10 billion and up are, you know, for lack of a better term and not saying it in a, a flippant way, but sort of dabbling with artificial intelligence in multiple corners of the business. So we might have, you know, three or four little random pilots with some vendor company that we kind of halfway screened in this corner of the business and other conversational stuff in another corner. And we're really thinking about doing more with fraud. We've got a couple ideas. We're kind of building some stuff in house and they've sort of come to the conclusion as, as many financial services firms are, are sort of coming to that, it might make sense for us to get a sense of what would be the critical capabilities we really want to build and focus on and what would be kind of the, the key pillars of kind of AI deployments that we really want to nail first. Because as it turns out, it's extremely hard to deploy these systems in existing enterprises. And it's also somewhat challenging to vet for the right vendors that are actually going to have a chance of delivering results. So for them, they're talking about reeling in a lot of these middling projects and focusing on pilots that don't waste money but end up in deployment end up building new skills, new culture, new resources that they can build new AI capabilities on in the future. So building a bit of a more mature approach to their initial instinct of, hey, let's go try it. So that's, that's one example, and it's not all that far off from uh, other projects here at Emerge. So one of the things that you talk about is the idea of building an AI advantage. What does that mean? What is an AI advantage? Yeah, um, there's a lot of ways to think about this. So, um, and I should be clear as well, Artificial intelligence is clearly not the only way to build an advantage in business. I mean, you can have uh, better operations in different ways. You can have leadership. We've just decided to focus. We're a relatively boutique firm at this point. You can kind of think about us like a forester or a gardener, but we're very small and we're very focused on one thing. And that's the ROI of artificial intelligence. So we, we don't, we don't do all tech. Um, so we, we have to stay narrow. So in the context of the narrow area where we focus, not discounting the other wonderful things about business, um, we really think about AI advantage across two spectrums. So one of them is what we call critical capabilities. So uh, when it comes to prerequisites of artificial intelligence uh, deployment, so before we're actually going to bring AI to life in, let's say, a big retail chain or a large insurance company, um, there's a whole new set of skills, meaning talent and ways of teams operating uh, that we need to be able to sort of make as new normal within the company, or at least the parts where we're deploying AI. There's new elements of culture. We have to treat data in a new way. We have to have an understanding of data among our leadership and an understanding of relative AI use cases among 
our leadership and our functional leaders. And then there's resources. We actually need to have data access and quality, and we need to have playbooks and ways of operating these new machine learning systems that involve a lot of iteration and a lot of training over time. They're not plug and play IT. Um, and so being able to build that foundation will allow companies to be more nimble moving forward. You see companies like your, you know, we've done plenty of interviews at headquarters of let's say Airbnb or Facebook and some of their AI leadership. And you can see how nimbly Silicon Valley companies move. It's not just because they have money and because they hog all the PhDs, although they do hog all the PhDs, um, but it's also because they, they have these elements in place. So one element of advantage is if we can build the new kind of IT foundation that's going to be sort of able to enable AI, then we'll be able to uh, jump on conversational interface when it makes sense and get it to work. Jump on a new fraud model that'll astronomically beat out whatever we're doing for fraud now and get it to work and nimbly move to the applications that have high ROI. So that's, that's one element of what we would call an AI advantage would be critical capabilities. We have a whole framework around this built in part of our interviews with the big Silicon Valley firms, as well as with uh, older enterprises that are kind of modernizing their efforts. The other side is what we call data dominance. And data dominance is kind of the, the golden dream of the venture capitalists. About three years ago, I did a big interview series with uh, a dozen or more VCs, many of which were in the Bay Area. I was actually living in Silicon Valley at the time. The idea here is to be able to build a, a critical mass of data in a very particular and narrow domain um, to be able to build what might be described as kind of a monopolistic advantage. I don't mean that in some kind of nefarious and bad way. I mean it in terms of being able to leverage AI to build a real strong kind of competitive moat. Before I kind of hop into that, I just want to make sure you're following me here. And if there's anything else you want to poke into, because I know I'm moving kind of quick. No, I no, I get it. I mean, the proprietary advantage, you know, building something that you have access to. It was actually one of the very early episodes that we did on marketing trends um, was with a startup that was that was leveraging machine learning and they we were talking about the difference between like a huge organization that has tons of data versus a startup where you have none and you need to leverage other large data sets and figure out more creative ways to use it because you don't have those type of things but a lot of times the senior leaders at at huge companies that have a lot of the data it's kind of like the two-edged sword where yeah you have all of this information, but it's not necessarily in the right places or it's yeah. not connected or, you know, whatever it is. So to build that moat is, uh, is pretty tricky. And, and I can give you an idea of what it might look like, um, just to make this clear for the audience of what this mode is, if that's cool for you. Fire away. Oh, great, great. Okay. So, um, you know, the, the example that most folks will be common with here or familiar with here would be something like Amazon. So th this is almost a rote example, but it's important to go over this first. And then we can talk about something more provincial, let's say, in terms of a business use case. But Amazon has essentially owned general e-commerce. If you want to buy general stuff, um, you're going to go to Amazon. Now, it's possible that if you are a horseback rider and, you know, you want some kind of like really fancy horseshoes or horseshoe nails or something, that there's some other website that's better for you. Uh, but if you want to buy batteries or food or you name it, um, you, you go to Amazon. Now, the way that they've done that is they obviously started with a particular set of products. They started with books, they went to CDs, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the general shtick is they've been able to have so many folks engage with their platform to purchase and they've been able to nimbly leverage 
the purchase behavior of these different kinds of actors. So they have some demographic understanding of people, some purchase history understanding of people, some understanding of what kinds of recommended products people purchase, and they're constantly iterating and getting a real-time understanding of, for this kind of patterned buyer with this kind of history on this kind of day, you know, maybe even down to this kind of weather, here's the products we should probably recommend to them. Here's what they're most likely looking for in addition to what they're buying now. And so because that experience, those recommendations are so good, people will go back to Amazon. I mean, I remember five or eight years ago, back when I didn't order absolutely everything on Amazon, now it's literally everything. Five or eight years ago, you know, I'd be rather impressed that, you know, if I was reading some book about Pericles, they would, you know, recommend some other book about Epaminondas or something like that. Really obscure things that really pertain to my own likings about history or biography or whatever the case may be. And so that'll get folks to keep coming back. Now, if folks keep coming back, Amazon gets more what? Data. And if they get more data, they're able to make the product even better to the point where they can spin the flywheel of usership and ability to improve the user experience whereby you wouldn't really spend your money anywhere else unless the government comes in and breaks up Amazon. So that's the, the traditional example. Let me know if that makes sense and then I can kind of jump into something again a little bit smaller for, for the audience. Yeah, keep rolling. Cool, so uh, an, an example here could spin into something as, you know, we could say boring as HVAC equipment. So let's just say that I make, you know, I don't, I don't, to be frank with you, I'm using a very random example and I'm not all that familiar with the HVAC industry. To be honest, we, we don't do much AI research with the HVAC industry, although maybe one day that'll change, but for right now we don't. Um, but let's just say that we make devices and machines to heat and cool office buildings. We, uh, you know, we, we have air conditioning units and we have heating units and we control kind of the pipes and the vents and the whole system to sort of keep an office building climate controlled, so to speak. Uh, if hypothetically, we're able to use, let's say, IoT sensor data. So this is a bit of a random example, but I could see this as perfectly viable. If we're able to use IoT sensor data to determine some specific details about the performance of our heating and cooling units, and maybe the, the actual flow of air and the actual temperature within different rooms, and maybe how many people are in those rooms, we might bring ourselves to the point where we can uh, reduce energy costs substantially, but maintain the same awesome experience for the folks that are in there, because maybe we're only heating and cooling things at the right times, or maybe we restructure the vents based on the sensor data we gathered to make the energy flow more efficient, for, for example. And if we can bring down annual energy costs for all heating and cooling in a gigantic office building, that's a really, really substantial value. Now, if we can do that for six office buildings, if we can do that for 12 office buildings, maybe 80 office buildings, and we can have some kind of IoT data in the mix throughout, we might be able to find through any kind of combination of vents and where the heaters and coolers are placed, we'll know when to run them, how to run them, how to operate them to really drop energy costs to the point where we can go to any new big building and we can say, hey, what are you paying for energy right now? You know, we can come up with some kind of a guarantee or some kind of a stipulation to reduce it by 20% based on our past experience and our proprietary technology and data that we've built up. And that might be a way for a company that seemingly would be quite boring to be able to build uh, a bit of a data moat, what we call data dominance in a very narrow domain. Not all businesses need that, but it's nice to be able to have a transformative vision where we, at least we have the potential for that because the, uh, the upside is, is substantive. That's super interesting. So do you think that like what kinds of companies are doing a good job of this right now versus companies that are struggling? Sometimes this question is framed in a different way. So the, the way I normally hear people ask this question is, who is adopting and deploying AI 
well and who is not adopting and deploying AI well. Generally, the fault line is actually not across industries in a way where people might think like, oh, well, you know, I, I could tell you, and it's true that, you know, credit card companies are astronomically farther along than, um, you know, automotive parts manufacturers, right? That, that would be a true statement if I were to tell you that. If I were to say that even brick and mortar retail companies, which frankly aren't super awesome at this, are, are, are doing better than, let's say, your average oil and gas company pound for pound, that would also be true. But generally what we're looking at is firms that are more digitally native just do a better job with this. So if we're going to boil this down to an industry, e-commerce is, the entire industry of quote-unquote e-commerce is new. Like there, there are no e-commerce companies that have been around for 50 years, never mind 150 years or 200 yeah. years, like an HSBC or something like that. So we just don't have stodge. We were built for the internet. We were built to at least to some degree respect data, at least to some degree understand and, and already be digitally native. We were born digitally native in, in those particular industries. And so if we want to see where things are moving fastest, we might look at spaces like e-commerce, um, like online media. So online media could be, you know, a Facebook, for example, but it could also be a website like House, H-O-U-Z-Z, which is kind of an, a new media platform for buying home goods and finding home improvement professionals. Uh, so that's also kind of a media platform, so to speak. Again, very, very new companies. These, these new internet media firms are, are always rather new. And then fintech is also a space that's moving quickly. Again, part of their advantage here is they're just born digitally native um, even the best of the best when it comes to really putting forth effort and really trying quite hard in bigger, stodgier companies, like let's say a Citibank, even the best of the best have, have mighty struggles ahead. Now, it's, it's not an effort in vain, and, and they're making important strides forward, but they have a lot of strain ahead to real, really be able to bring some of these projects to life. It'll matter a lot who, who pulls ahead in terms of JP Morgan versus Citi versus you name it, but they, they end up having a lot more hurdles to adoption. Well, also, I mean, all the companies that you listed, A, have a direct relationship with the customer, right? Like they're the person they're selling to is the person who's interacting on their website. And they, you know, either have an application or a website that they optimize all these things for. So they're collecting data in a very purposeful way, right? Like if you were in, I'm trying to think of like a huge company that, you know, like a semiconductor company or somebody like that who is not necessarily working direct, they're working through resellers, they're not working directly with, yep. you know, things like that. And they're also not a high volume industry, yeah. then it's just a very different, the way that you'd be looking at AI would be extremely different, right? You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. So, you know, high volume is, is an interesting point that you bring up. You know, if, if we are if I'm Wayfair and I make, I don't know what they make top line these days, but let's just say it's $3 billion or something. If I'm Wayfair and I make $3 billion selling, I don't know, couch cushions and chairs on, on a website from a company based in Boston, that's different than, you know, some kind of a services company that services uh, uh, like oil rigs. So we, we, we send out teams and, and technologies and equipment to maintain and, and, and operate oil rigs and we make $3 billion a year. It's like, there are going to be more challenges with applying AI to sales. That's for sure. There's going to be challenges with applying AI for sales. The question would be, if we were looking for AI opportunity, and that's normally when people come to us, they already have assumptions, but they want to validate them with data, and they don't want to work with the wrong vendors, then we would want to look at, well, where is the data? And where is the potential data advantage 
in operating an oil rig. Maybe if it's somebody else's rig, there's a little bit less advantage to training specifically on this one if we're just going to get moved somewhere else or if the, the ultimate advantage is going to be the client more so than some lasting advantage with us as the services firm. These are more in-depth strategic conversations. But to your point, on the sales and marketing and customer-facing side, if we are a couple big fat deals a year, then a lot of the customer-facing potential applications for AI really, really drop in terms of their potential, as opposed to tracking millions and millions of, of uh, conversions to dollars uh, via an e-commerce website. Or something like, you know, the workflows inside your company or any type of like internal specific thing that you could point AI or machine learning at to, you know, increase, you know, operational efficiencies or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you, you could totally, you know, you could look for, again, where is there somewhere within our firm where there's, you know, harmonized data that we could train an AI system on that we could, you know, apply in some meaningful way to, to streamline operations. And I think that we've been doing a lot of research, as you can imagine, given the coronavirus here, this gargantuan disruption, we normally come in in kind of you know, strategy thinking time. And I think a lot of strategies are getting rethought right now. And so a lot of our interviews with previous leaders are getting kind of repeated asking questions like, hey, what's more and less important for you now that we're in this kind of new era of uncertainty? And one thing that's really shining forth to your point is around operational efficiency. What are the elements of what we're doing within our company that honestly could be smoother, could be faster, could be more automated, or could be augmented so that they're speedier and, and less, less costly for us than they were before? Because I think companies are really going to want to be lean and mean and build this new foundation. Again, our, our framework is around critical capabilities, but the, the, the idea is the same, build a new foundation for faster operations. So to your point, there, there is plenty of fruit to bear there as well. And I think that, to be honest, in the enterprise is going to be where a lot of the attention is focused for the next two to three years. Yeah, that makes sense. You've talked about in the past how AI and machine learning and all this stuff are becoming buzzwords and like absolutely, you know, they are and we're Definitely guilty of that, of, of talking about it ourselves. But I think kind of like one of the interesting things about that is when you're asking people about AI and like, what's your AI strategy or things like that, even though it's so uh, vague, it actually does help focus the conversation because this is such a confusing topic. And it's, you know, the equivalent of I like the, the early videos of like, what is the World Wide Web? You know, yeah, or like, what oh, is those are so internet? fun to yeah. watch those on YouTube. Yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. a pleasure to see that. I'm curious, like, so what are you doing? What are some rules of thumb here for how you view these words and kind of separating truth from the noise? There's a, there's a, we could call it an uncomfortable reality of, of artificial intelligence where in order to build a technology strategy that, that, leverages AI in, in, let's say, an advantageous way, in a high ROI way, or a way that gives us the best chance of a high ROI, we do need leadership that has some fundamental grasp of what the heck we're working with here. So a lot of the time, now that's not always the case. You know, we're often working with a head of innovation or a head of strategy. And sometimes those folks are pretty sharp. They've listened to our podcast for two years. You know, they've been on the newsletter. They go to you know, MIT technology review events, you know, twice a year or something like that. And, and they sort of get conceptually what AI can do, but they have to sell this stuff upstream to a C-suite that essentially thinks of AI as IT. Like, oh yeah, let's just buy it and plug it in. You know, well, yeah, let's just get the fraud thing. Let's get the chatbot thing. Everybody's got a press release. How come we don't have a chatbot around here? That's often kind of 
what things are like in, in some corners of the business. And it's not because the C-suite are not brilliant people. I mean, these are extremely brilliant, extremely hardworking people. But to your point, AI is such a new domain. It's such a new world. There's, there's so many new facets of what we have to grasp to get it to, to be unlocked. So when you say, you know, how do you deal with this kind of hype issue? What we try to do is we try to make sure that if we're helping to build a strategy and we have a lot of different stakeholders in the room, which, which is often going to be the case. Although now I imagine a lot of the stakeholders are going to be on a zoom call because we'll be doing less, uh, enterprise visits in the next six months here. But we focus on three areas. One is how AI works broadly. So just understanding data, understanding algorithms, not learning to code, just understanding conceptually how machine learning systems are trained, what a couple basic use cases are so they understand the concepts. The the second part here is basic terms and components. Do we understand what an algorithm is, just as a phrase? Do we, do we know what computer vision is, maybe natural language processing? We don't need 50 of these terms, but we probably have maybe half a dozen, a dozen of them that we should have a reasonable grasp of. And then the third is a representative set of use cases. So do we know realistically what could this new technology enable within the different corners of our business? And of course, a lot of the value prop here at Emerge is painting the full vision of what that use case landscape is by diving into all the startups, all the enterprises. So making that complete is kind of our our value proposition here. However, even just knowing a fistful of use cases for an insurance executive who otherwise kind of thinks that it's like IT will help to unlock parts of the brain to get their ideas flowing in new ways where they can actually contribute to that conversation and build a strategy that's realistic. You know, something that's actually accessible, not something that's a little bit overly hopeful or maybe unimaginative uh, where we're not making the best use of the technology or our own resources. So we sort of strive for those three, three points when we're working with uh, high-level teams, whenever possible. It's not, a, not always going to get there, but whenever possible. Are there any things that you've seen over the past couple of years that have really surprised you when it comes to some companies and their AI strategy? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's been use cases where I've thought, by golly, that's really neat. I really like that use case, and I think it's a great inspiration for other companies. So maybe I can give you a couple of those, like some use cases I just thought were, were pretty interesting. Yeah, that's great. So one is, I actually mentioned, this is a little bit of an arbitrary example, but I've, I've studied them a good deal because I, I like the way they operate, I like their story, is that, that business called House, H-O-U-Z-Z. I believe they're a unicorn many times over at this point, although Lord knows what's going to happen with this economy and those guys, but they are a massive platform for home improvement professionals, such as interior designers, such as garden designers and painters and other kinds of home improvement folks, as well as people that are looking to build their home. So people that are looking to build their home will surf through this platform of different kinds of, you know, lookbooks, so to speak. So if they like a certain kind of industrial design and they're living in New York City and they have a certain amount of square feet, they can find kind of images that resonate with their tastes and their liking. So what these folks do is they've trained computer vision systems to be able to identify uh, pictures, imagery, to match to certain styles. So if you really like a Victorian style or you like a very modern style or you like a very, I don't know, Second Empire French style, for example, of a ballroom or a dining room or you name it, they'll have some grasp of what sorts of pictures, what kinds of assortments, what sorts of furniture might be to your liking. So as you're exploring and you're browsing after you've told them their preferences, they're able to take images that were never tagged and labeled by a human, 
but we're sort of coaxed forth by machine learning, by computer vision systems to say, hey, this resonates with what this user likes. They said they like Second Empire. This image, which was just uploaded five minutes ago, has a lot of these qualities and traits that we think might make it something they might want to look at. The other thing that they do that I think is really neat is they will be able to highlight products within an image. So they have computer vision systems that will draw a bounding box around a couch, let's say. And when you click on that couch, you click within that bounding box. Underneath the image is going to show up four or five different couches that you can buy of, the, of about the same color. Now, it might not be exactly the same couch, but it is a visually similar couch that their system has matched from their various suppliers. House doesn't actually keep any supply. They just connect people to other suppliers. So they'll, they'll link to other visually similar products and you can click and purchase. And House has never had to keep anything in a warehouse. They're literally just routing you to who can service you because they actually have the eyeballs. They have the computer vision to identify the product. You click on a lamp, you buy one that looks just like it, you send it to your house. And I think that's kind of a neat strategy. So that's that's one way where customer experience and transaction are really pretty married in a way that I think is um, inspiring and it's going to be used in, in other areas of business. Yeah, I love that. Those are those are such great. And I've, I, as someone who just moved recently, I've definitely been on house before uh, a, a couple of times. But I, I, and I think that like, you know, this is one of those classic cases where it's pretty cool right now. And in 10 years, like, can you oh, even man. imagine what that experience looks like? Yeah, in 20 years, you're just going to have some kind of chip behind your eyeballs and then you're going to live in whatever kind of house you want to live in because it's going to be programmatically generated. But yeah, in, in, uh, in 10 years, it'll be a, a better website experience um, before we get to the crazy, wild technology transition stuff. But yeah, it's, it's certainly headed to some interesting places. Any other examples that, that you thought were particularly illuminating? Yeah, yeah. So another company that I thought had an interesting workaround, and I want to make sure this is the right company. So I'm actually, yes, yes. Okay, this is them. So there's another firm by the name of Edited. Now, these are, these are kind of obscure examples, but these are just, you know, we do a tremendous number of interviews. I mean, within a given year, I might do six or 900 conversations with enterprise leaders and vendor companies for our, you know, when, when we're assigned to a project, there's, there's a ton of this heavy lifting. So Edited came out of one of our projects uh, with, an, with an e-commerce enterprise. And uh, we were lucky enough to do an interview with their, their CEO and actually talk about what they do because I think it's pretty unique. So they help to gauge the price for certain kinds of products. So like, how should we offer this kind of blouse? How should we offer this kind of handbag? How should we offer it? From what I gather, a lot of it is, is in the apparel and fashion space right now, um, at least when, when we talked to them maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And so the challenge with a lot of these kinds of applications is accessing the data. So if you're an AI startup, a lot of your work early on is locking yourself in with one enterprise, then locking yourself in with another enterprise, then locking yourself in with another enterprise. And normally these start as little unpaid pilot projects. It's very hard work. It's very white glove. And you hope, right, as a startup, you hope, and you don't know because there's a lot of failures here. You hope that after a certain number of companies, you will have a corpus of data and an amount of understanding that lets you perpetually be better at solving a new problem. So let's say I prevent money laundering at banks, okay? I detect money laundering uh, within, within large banks. I hope that if I work with four of the biggest banks in the United States, the data that I glean, the patterns that I glean, the common trends that I glean will be able to plug and play into Deutsche Bank, into you know, HSBC, into whatever non-US bank I want to I wanna work with. That, that's the hope. Now, what Edited does is they actually use, instead of working with 
Walmart and Target and whatever, and they might have those people as clients, but instead of counting on um, collecting them as clients to collect their data, they have trained web crawlers to explore all of the knowable inventory on these different kinds of websites. And again, when I talked to them, it was mostly apparel we were focused on here. So large apparel sellers, whether it's a Zara or it's a Gap or it's a whatever you want to say here, and they will crawl through and figure out what is it about this, this product. So they'll look at all the metadata around the product itself. They'll look at the image being used for the product itself. They'll look at the price being correlated to that product itself. And they pull in all that data by crawlers. So they don't actually have to lock in deals with these e-commerce uh, businesses. They've just found crawlers that'll get most of that heavy lifting done. And then they use that corpus to be able to help a new company say, hey, if you're going to sell this kind of blouse, here might be a good anchor price if you're going into this market. This is what it's based on. And that was a cool workaround for a lot of the bootstrapping elements that other startups have to do, a lot of the bootstrapping elements other AI applications have to do to be able to add a lot of value with less of that clunky upfront integration work. So I thought that that was something that a lot of new startups and potentially enterprises will model uh, whenever possible because it's a, a nice workaround. What about some of the most misunderstood aspects of AI? There are a great many of them. So um, I have a, a kind of a mentor of mine at this point, a fellow by the name of Dr. Charles Martin. He's been a, an AI consultant, a machine learning consultant for quite some time, uh, really, really sharp PhD. He talks about sort of beating the drum constantly of AI is not IT. Now, this is a little bit better understood than it was two years ago, but it, by no means is it well understood uh, ubiquitously within the enterprise. And if I talk about AI not being IT, I'll, I'll draw the line. So the misconception here, to answer your question, is, is that AI is very much like IT. So for IT, for example, integration is we find whatever APIs we need to hook up, we find whatever connectors we need to hook up, we, we do whatever heavy lifting we need to do, and then it's integrated and then it, then it works. So we kind of plug it in, so to speak. Um, with machine learning, we really have to feel out our data assets. We have to integrate things and experiment and, and iterate and do a lot of sifting and sorting to even see if there's a fit in the first place. There are no, there's, there's very few AI projects where certainty about value, certainty about capability is, is a foregone conclusion before we actually integrate it. So th there's a lot more trouble on the integration side. There's also a lot more trouble in terms of knowing exactly what it'll be able to do. I mentioned kind of capabilities here. So we might be under the really strong assumption that because we have done payment fraud for all these other kinds of companies, we are going to be able to do payment fraud for this particular company that we're trying to work with. But when we get into their systems, when we, we play around with their data, when we figure out you know, what kind of information we have access to about their customers. We may run up short in terms of certain customer information that they don't want to let us access. Or if we're working in Europe, we might not be able to access that data altogether because of GDPR. We, we may find that they've had these hard-coded rules-based systems that just seem to perform better than what we've been able to experiment with. So AI is unfortunately always going to be an experiment. And sometimes experiments fail. So we need this more R&D-oriented mentality. There's some applications that are more certain than others, don't get me wrong, and you want to focus on the ones that are more certain than not. But the fact of the matter is, for a lot of enterprise use cases, we really cannot be making bold claims up front. We have to be able to take initial steps. And that's something a lot of companies do not want to stomach. So, so in terms of misconceptions, I think that's one that probably sinks more pilot projects and wastes more millions than maybe any other misconception about AI uh, at present.
Yeah, that's super interesting. I like the I like the distinction there because it, especially with so many products that are so easy to start and stop now, right? Like there's so everything is on ease of use and setup and um, simplicity and you know companies make their onboarding all online and all that that yep. it is a pretty important distinction. Yeah, and to to your point just to build on it, it even goes to after we've integrated. So let's just say that we figure out some fantastic application and we get it all to work. Then we still need someone. So you know, if if I integrate Salesforce, it's a lot of heavy lifting and then okay, I have Salesforce. However, if I integrate some kind of fraud detection model for my payments, I now need someone to consistently look at the outputs of this payment system and consistently apply new feedback into the payment system based on what the system gets right and wrong to make sure that it doesn't start steering in the wrong direction. There's a term called algorithmic drift. It's occasionally called other things as well, um, where these machine learning systems will pick up on patterns that may or may not actually at the end of the day be delivering better results necessarily. So we kind of need human babysitters almost, we might think about it, data scientists, subject matter experts to work ongoing with this system to maintain it and make sure that it's, it's still working. So again, one more element that you don't have to do with a regular Salesforce integration, a regular nice friendly software onboarding. It's a different world. And so we really only want to double down on AI where that kind of effort is worth it. And for some applications like astronomically improving efficiencies or astronomically better serving customers, it is by all means worth it. But we cannot play around. You know, I mentioned the bank at the beginning of this call. We cannot play around with 12 of these projects at once if we have not mastered how this works, uh, because it is an entirely different way of of doing what we used to call kind of IT. You know, doing AI is not doing IT. Any other uh, misconceptions or, or misunderstood aspects? Well, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions around who's an AI company. A good deal of our work is actually around vendor selection. So figuring out, okay, well, we have finally decided we are going to move forward with a chatbot, or we have decided that we need an enterprise search application because we think it'll help us with preventing some compliance issues and we needed to have these capabilities, who do we work with? So we do a good deal of this work. But there, there are a lot of basic rules of thumb that don't necessarily require a market research firm. Now, if you're going to spend millions and do an integration, maybe, maybe you still want you know, actual fact-checking and, and data. But in terms of knowing who's real deal and who's not, there are some basics that I think more enterprise leaders should, should be aware of. So you talk about misconceptions. The misconception is that a company that has AI in its URL or AI in its homepage does AI. That's one. Uh, the second misconception is that whoever makes the most promising pitch like, is the person you should try to pilot your project with. Uh, the fact of the matter is the following. So here's a nice rule of thumb for your listeners. If we're looking at an AI service provider for whatever application we're, we're, we're going into, and there's no one on the leadership team of this company who either has a robust data science academic background. So sometimes this will come in the form of physics or the hard sciences or applied maths or something like that. Um, someone, someone who's sort of data science savvy in terms of their academic background. So if we have no one on the leadership team that has that, or no one on the leadership team who has robust hands-on AI experience at a marquee tech company like an IBM and Amazon, et cetera, uh, if we have neither of those among leadership of a company that's claiming they're an AI company, we likely do not have an AI company. We likely have a company that is riding on whatever marketing they can ride on um, and just has a couple C++ programmers in the Ukraine and they're telling you that they're doing AI because they think you know, it's, it's going to get them a pilot project that they wouldn't have won if they said we have a couple guys doing C++ in the Ukraine. So 
that's the that's the poor man's version of what we do uh, by by an order of maybe a thousandth. But it's it's a rule more people should employ. With everything swirling and the uncertainty around, um, you know, the pandemic and all that, I'm curious. Like, do you have any kind of thoughts or, or best practices on on leading through a crisis or how to deal with this uncertainty? Yeah, you know, I think we're we're just now the last two and a half weeks have been pretty well consumed with going back to a lot of our past interviewees and enterprise leaders and vendors and asking how are technology priorities changing. Um, obviously, leading through a crisis involves a lot more than how can we use AI, right? That's it's a very big problem about you know what divisions do we lay off? I mean, there's a lot of hard questions to ask. There's a lot of painful stuff going on. Um, but in terms of the shift of, of AI priorities, I can tell you what we've seen from our vantage point in speaking with, with enterprise leadership. So um, what, what we're seeing is a focus on applications that deal with immediate risks that pertain directly to what we're struggling with now. Now, I will be uh, frank here. There are many risk-related AI applications that are they do not score highly on ease of deployment. So again, ease of deployment is a, a, a broad spectrum that includes a whole bunch of sub sort of parts there, but this is one of the ways that we score applications. There's many risk-related applications that might take us 18 months to set the foundations for before we can see any value. Those are not really being a focus right now for companies if they want to see some kind of immediate result. But I'll give you a couple areas. So in a time of uh, massive recession, um, insurance fraud is bound to go up. Um, payment fraud and chargebacks, what are sometimes called friendly fraud in, in, in the payment space, um, are, are bound to go up. And many of those applications are not only rather easy to deploy sometimes, but they are, they're also rather easy to quantify our return on investment. And we're, when we're already bleeding cash, there is a, a pivot towards applications with ease of deployment, measurable ROI for risk reduction, things that we can, we can get going relatively swiftly. So we're seeing any innovation effort that's still left being pivoted towards those those kinds of priorities, and there's pockets of that in all industries, but I've just given you a couple. Um, the, the consensus seems to be that after, let's say, Lord knows how many months this is gonna go for, but let's just say whenever we get back to, you know, the dust settles, so to speak, and we start building up from whatever rubble is gonna be left here, uh, companies are, are almost inevitably gonna be focused on having more resilient and more agile operations. So um, this might involve automation like RPA, which may or may not involve AI at all, uh, but it may involve artificial intelligence to either augment human skills or in, in some areas just kind of almost completely handle certain tasks that maybe we would have needed people for in the past because I, I think the companies that are least far in their, their, their digital transformation are going to be the ones that get hit hardest by this. So I think really racing ahead while we're really lean is probably going to be uh, the area of focus for, again, the next two to three years, as I mentioned before. So really shooting for efficiencies, I think, is going to be the, the strategic pivot once the dust settles. But in the interim, it's going to be that, that easy to deploy stuff that's going to help us stop the bleeding because that is the only priority enterprises are thinking about in most sectors right now. By the way, I should add that uh, if if you want to hear more from Daniel, that you can check out the AI in Business podcast, and we'll link that up in the show notes, because uh, lots more AI insights if you're interested. And I want to get into our lightning round questions. Yeah, let's do it. These questions are fast and easy, just like customer experience from the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience Go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more all about it. We love Salesforce. They've been with us since the very beginning. Lightning round questions. Dan, are you ready? I am ready. Let's do it. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? 
I used to have a chess app, but I got rid of it because when I was on airplanes, I wouldn't read books. I would just play chess the whole time. So I would say that, but it's gone now. So maybe Grubhub when I order a pizza for the guys, that's probably it. Do you have a favorite podcast or book that you've read or listened to recently? Oh man, a favorite podcast? Oddly enough, no. A favorite book? Uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of, and I, I, I'm, unfortunately, I'm unaware of the author, but I'm in the middle of a, a biography of Deng Xiaoping, the, the, the sort of successor to Mao in, in China, which is utterly fascinating. One of the best biographies I've ever read, but unfortunately, I don't know the author. I might have to sing that along to you in the show notes, but that's what I'm buried in right now and enjoying every minute of it. What do you do for fun? I read history. I read good literature, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Francis Bacon, Michel de Montaigne, Plutarch. And I walk in the woods. And other than that, I work. We already know your your hidden talent, which is not so hidden, uh, because uh, <laughs> you're a national champion in uh, in jujitsu. So, uh, what's you know for for those uh, people listening, what's your what's your best advice for somebody who's who wants to get started uh, in jujitsu? Oh man, well, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a lot of fun. You don't have to want to be a fighter. You can just want to get in shape or learn some basics of self defense. I would say. Go go try a couple classes at a couple different academies and get a sense of how well you're treated as the new person. You know, there are some gyms that are just kind of an, an old boys club, so to speak, and they're not necessarily a great fit for, you know, your average person who just sort of wants to get in shape. But if they treat you professionally, they've got a great onboarding process for beginners in terms of teaching you the basics and making you feel safe and sound. If they've got both that and an instructor who's well decorated kind of competitively, or at least his his top students are, that's a normally a great place to be able to train. So those those would be filters I would use. Well, that's it. That's all we got. Where can uh, people find you at? Yeah, folks who want to learn more about us. You mentioned the AI and Business Podcast. We've got a bunch of great guests, everybody from the, the head of AI at Raytheon to you know cool startups around the world. So that's one place to find us. Emerge.com is the main website, but we, we've recently come out with a free guide for getting started with AI. So sort of fundamentals of adoption. You and I talked a good deal about that today. So that, that might be of relevance for the audience. And that's emerge.com. That's E-M-E-R-J.com slash B-E-G-1. So B-E-G like beginner, but B-E-G and then, then the number one. So emerge.com slash B-E-G-1. That's, that's probably the best place to get a hold of me. And, and otherwise, you can give me a shout on Twitter and let me know you heard me on this podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. We appreciate you coming on and uh, lots more fun AI stuff coming, coming from Emerge. So oh, we'll, we'll stay tuned. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much. Take care. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Take climate action with a pre-built carbon accounting solution and gain insights into your greenhouse gas emissions. Learn more at salesforce.com slash solutions slash sustainability.